when we come and we gather to create Islam, to go to the house of God, generally allowed woman to sit behind the wheel. Stop, brothers and sisters, is the situation of women in this world. referred to as Islamic laws and I'd like to examine this very important topic. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the verse that I began my lecture with in Surah Al-Anfal calls on to the Muslim community and the community of believers, the mu'mineen to be an alive and rejuvenated community of believers to take from Allah and Rasulullah that which will give them life that which will open their eyes to the reality of life that which will increase in their wisdom that which will increase in their enlightenment Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in no shape or form desires a community of believers that live in a state of confusion, live in a state of uncertainty, live in a state of ignorance. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala desires for the believers and the mu'mineen to live in a state of enlightenment, knowledge, certainty, and to be an alive community of mu'mineen. A vibrant community, an effective community, an educated community. And Allah refers to that as life. So He speaks to the mu'mineen who are alive, who live, who breathe. And He says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu stajibu. React. Stajibu. Accept. Istajibu, honor that which is offered to you by Allah and Rasulullah that will end up giving you life. We don't want you to be a dead community. We don't want you to be a dead ummah. Istajibu, lillahi wa lirrasuli idha da'akum lima yuhyikum. Allah and Rasulullah are offering you something that which, that which, which will enable you life. Don't be indifferent towards Allah and Rasulullah. And that is the true definition of Islam. Brothers, Islam is when we submit to Allah and Rasulullah and in return we live an honorable life. We should not question Allah and we should not question Rasulullah. The wisest moments of our lives are the moments where we submit to Allah. We don't question Him. And the most difficult and painful moments of our lives are those where we try to question Allah, fight with Allah's fate and decisions that He has made for us. We struggle because there is a power above us that has dictated for us the best of plans. We may not understand them. 
We may not see them as the best events happening in our lives, but rest assured that if we understand them and we truly submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is the essence of happiness. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this ayah, 1,400 years ago, 14 centuries ago, calls the Muslim ummah to be an alive ummah, a rejuvenated ummah, a powerful ummah, an ummah that will be a source of pride and glory. And let me ask you today, after 14 centuries, 1,400 years after the revelation and dissension of this ayah in Surah Al-Furqan, is the Muslim Ummah an alive Ummah? Is it an Ummah that is a source of pride and glory? Is it an Ummah of knowledge? Is it an Ummah of awareness? Is it an Ummah that has escaped from darkness into light? It's an Ummah that has the highest amount of impoverishment and disease and it's the biggest exporter of refugees and the biggest number of executions take place in the Muslim Ummah and the Muslim countries the largest numbers of illiteracy are in the Muslim countries the largest number of political prisoners are in the Muslim countries the greatest gap between the economic situation are in the Muslim countries. The worst of schools are in the Muslim countries. The worst of regimes are in the Muslim countries. Is it a ummah that is alive? Have they truly honored that which is offered to them by Allah and Rasulullah? Their Muslim brethren drown in the seas. And they lose their lives and their wealth and their children and they're not willing to open up their doors for them, to welcome them for the sake of humanity. But yet they're willing to spend billions and billions of dollars to buy weapons and to fight one another. The Muslim Ummah today is busy amputating the limbs of innocent people and detonating bombs. <coughs> in the marketplace and in the midst of the cities the ummah today is represented by Daesh <coughs> and when we attend the majalis of Ahlul Bayt we attend the majalis of Aba Abdullah Al Hussein for example Brothers, we must be able to connect ourselves with the goals and the mission statement of Imam al Hussein. Imam al Hussein had a mission statement. And he made that very clear. And he spoke of his mission statement. And he wants me and you to align ourselves with his mission statement and to achieve that which he was trying to achieve. And very brief statements. He stood and he says, Inni lam akhruj ashran, wala batiran, wala mufsida, bal kharajtu li islahi ummati jaddi. Rasulullah, I did not embark on this journey for the sake of fame. 
for the sake of popularity, for any other reason besides to seek perfection in the ummah of my grandfather Rasulullah, لكي آمر بالمعروف وأنهى عن المنكر وأسير على سيرة جدي وأبي and to take to enjoin the good to forbid the bad evil and to take the footsteps of my grandfather Rasulullah and my father Amir al-Mu'mineen so the majalis of Imam al-Hussein what is their job what is their task it's mentioned by Imam al-Hussein and ultimately what was the task of Imam al-Hussein to give life to the ummah to rejuvenate the ummah he gave himself he gave his children he gave the dearest most honorable most beloved individuals walking on the face of the earth to give life to the muslim ummah to do that which the quran is asking us to achieve to be an ummah that is aware to be an ummah that is awakened to be an ummah that is vibrant, not a dead ummah. And prior to him, it was his noble mother Fatima to Zahra that we're commemorating this evening. The most honorable and sacred woman in the history of Islam. As-Siddiqah, As-Shaheedah, At-Tahirah, Fatima. What did she do? I spoke yesterday of the events leading to the martyrdom of Fatima to Zahra. From the day of Ghadir all the way until the moment that her home was attacked. You realize that the Ummah was going through a huge decline. It was not aligned with the principles of Islam and the teachings of the Quran. It had the audacity to attack the house of Rasulullah the sacred home of Fatima, the home that Jibra'il honored, Allah honored and praised. This Ummah, while Rasulullah was not put in his grave, he had just died gathered in Saqifah to choose the leadership after him and to go against the will of Allah and Rasulullah. So Fatima decided that she's going to give herself, sacrifice herself to give life to the Ummah, to rejuvenate the Ummah, to allow this Ummah to be an alive Ummah, not a dead one. And there are many topics, many subjects, many issues that are of extreme importance within our community today that need to be addressed from the pulpit of Fatima to Zahra. So that we can be, so we can remain aligned with the teachings of Fatima, with the legacy of Fatima, with the mission statement of Fatima, so that we can do that which the Quran requires of us to do. So we can be reactive. So we can be alert when it comes to the call of Allah and Rasulullah. And amongst that, brothers and sisters, is the situation of women in this ummah. <clears throat> the way women are observed and treated. And of course, the season of Fatimiyah 
as a season to empower the Muslim woman. Today in the 55 Muslim countries, in the global Muslim community, ask yourselves an honest and extremely important question. Are we happy and content with the situation of the Muslim woman and Muslim countries and Muslim lands and Muslim communities and Muslim societies and Muslim families? In the year 2017, the woman in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia celebrated a huge victory. What was it? They were given permission to drive. In the year 2017, they were celebrating the fact that they were given permission to drive. In the United States, a 15-year-old woman can obtain a driving permit and drive. In Saudi Arabia, in the year 2017, in the cradle of Islam, the birthplace of Islam, in the year 2017, they've barely allowed women to sit behind the wheel of a car. And the worst part isn't this. The worst part is they ask the ulama, the so-called Muslim scholars, and the grand mufti of the Saudi monarchy, what do you think of this decision? He said, it's the wrong decision. It's very dangerous. They told him why. He said, because women have half a brain. How can someone with half a brain sit behind the wheel? That's dangerous for our society. All in the name of Islam. All in the name of the Quran. And the land which Rasulullah came to change the paradigm of people and how they perceived women and how they treated women. And the land where he honored Khadija and he honored Fatima. This is how Islam is represented. And some Muslim countries until today, women cannot seek upper education, higher education. And in some parts of the Muslim world, Muslim women can simply not have the chance to seek education. When it comes to the Muslim community in the West, those who have migrated to the US, the United Kingdom, Australia, different parts of the modern world, What's interesting is some of us have carried this baggage with us all the way to the West. I remember there was a community in the US. They had a mosque in a city where the city had elected a woman as a mayor. So this woman ran for the city. And she became the mayor of the city. So the, this community went to congratulate her. And they invited her to speak at an event in the month of Ramadan. So she came. She came. She saw the beautiful masjid. She was about to enter the mayor. They told her, sorry. You have to go to the other hall. 
She said, which hall? She said, you know, the woman's hall there. The smaller one. With a small entrance. She said, okay. He opened the door and there is a hall full of women and children like a, a camp. She sat there. Am I going to give a speech to the woman? They said, no, we have a camera. It will take your footage to the, to the men's hall. So she spoke. She spoke. When she came out, she told the head of the center, she said, I feel sorry for the woman in your community, for the way you treat them. This is disrespectful. She left. For one year, they decided, what are we going to do so that next time when the mayor comes, it's not going to be as disgraceful as this time. So next year she came and she was about to go to the woman's hall. They said, no, please come to the main hall, the big one with a nice entrance. She went in, of course, before she went in, they put about 65 layers of bulletproof hijab all over her. She went in and there was just men, no women. She spoke. She says, you didn't have a woman's attendance today? They said, yes, they're still in that hall. But we took your footage via the cameras to them. She said, I feel very sorry for the woman in your community. You know what she meant deep inside? She meant, I feel bad for them because they're Muslims. Because your religion disrespects them. Because your religion allows them to be mistreated like this, disrespected, humiliated, treated as second-class citizens. Some of us have brought this cultural background baggage with us and we distort the reputation of Islam and the name of Islam and the legacy of Islam by, by our own actions. We don't need the enemies of Islam to work against Islam. We do it with our own hands. We distort the reputation of Islam. The rumors that tell you Islam mistreats women, treats them as second-class citizens, does that give them rights? Anybody who visits most and the majority of our Islamic centers, if they had any doubt, then they'll be certain that Islam treats women as second-class citizens. One day, Abdullah, the son of Umar, he was a scholar, he sat in the masjid, and he was saying, I heard Rasulullah say, La tamna'u ima Allah buyut Allah. Do not refrain the female servants of God, the houses of God. Don't stop those women, the woman servants of God, to go to the house of God, to worship, to pray, to be present. And houses of worship, his son, his own son, stood up and he said, I swear that we will stop them. We won't let them go. We won't let them attend. We won't let them leave the house. He says, I'm telling you, this is the word of Rasulullah. He said, when? Who cares? He wanted to implement the spirit of Jahiliyyah. What is Jahiliyyah? Jahiliyyah is the pre-Islamic era of ignorance. Rasulullah comes and teaches him something. He says, I don't care. I'm going to do that 
which I feel is correct. Today, some of us still live in Jahiliyyah. Islam came to change the paradigm of people when it comes to women, but we allow the cultural baggage that we have to overrule the teachings of Islam. To override the teachings of Islam. And therefore, it results an injustice within our community towards the woman. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala appointed Rasulullah so that we escape from this darkness of jahiliyyah. And the religion of Islam, brothers and sisters, is a religion that is meant to serve people until the end of time. And it's meant for every part of the world and every culture and every era. But some of us, we decide to keep Islam for countries that are a thousand years behind and everything. And we use Islam as a cultural part of who we are. Does not define our faith. So we come and we gather to create Islamic centers. Not to educate ourselves, not to, men to stimulate our minds, not to seek the education of the Quran and Ahlul Bayt, but to create cultural um, places where we gather and we remind ourselves of how things are done back home. Obviously, I can't sit in an aircraft and fly back to Islamabad and Karachi and Tehran and Karbala and Najaf every weekend. That's not possible. So what do we do? We create our mosques, our Islamic centers, our houses of worship, a replica of what we want to feel when we go back home. So when we enter the mosque, it's as if we have traveled back to Pakistan and India and Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan. Everything changes. The way we dress changes. The way we speak changes. The way we behave changes. The way we act changes. The way we eat changes. The way, excuse me, we use the restroom changes. Everything is messy. When we leave, we sit in our vehicles. No, we go back to the normal world. We follow the rules. We follow every discipline that we're ought to discipline. We don't break the law. We're respectful. We're clean. We dress nice. We speak the way we should. Today, I'd like to examine this very important topic. The fiqh of, of women's rights in the following manner, following three steps. And this is probably one of the most important discussions that we've had in this series. And it needs your undivided attention. Number one, what do we mean by fiqh? What is fiqh? Number two, how is it that we may examine some ahadith 
and some traditions that are disrespectful towards women. And number three, what is the plan of Islam and the Quran, the Ahl al-Bayt, to empower the Muslim woman after your loud salawat ala Muhammadin wa Ali Muhammad? For the love of Imam Al-Hasan wal Hussein, the second salawat. A lot of us misunderstand the concept of fiqh. We feel that fiqh is what's referred to as Islamic laws and jurisprudence. And a faqih is a person who understands Islamic laws and Islamic jurisprudence. And the most knowledgeable faqih is a faqih who is an expert when it comes to Islamic laws and jurisprudence. But what is fiqh? We have the minor fiqh and the major fiqh. The minor fiqh is al-ahkam al-shari'ah. The Islamic laws, Islamic regulations. What you see in Risala al-Amaliyah. The major fiqh, the grand fiqh, is all the Islamic sciences combined. Quran, aql, intellect, Hadith. And the science of Hadith is an extremely complex one. You have to study the Rijal, the chain of narrators. You have to study the Matn, the language of the Hadith. You have to be able to see if this Hadith is aligned with the Quran. Or is it contradictory of the Quran? This is the science of Hadith. History, Islamic philosophy, and the rest of Islamic sciences all put together are called tafaqqah. And a faqih and the most learned of fuqaha is the one who has the ability to understand all of those sciences and extract the verdict, the fatwa, the theory out of all of them combined together. Give me your undivided attention. So when we come to certain hadith, not something that you just here and it needs more thinking we are here to stimulate your mind this evening when it comes to certain verses within the holy quran for example allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals an entire chapter surah al-mujadala qad sami'a allah qawla allati tujadiluka fi zawjiha wa tashtaki ila allah wallahu yasma'u tahawurakuma a woman has a disagreement with her husband. She's about to leave the house. Her husband tells her, where do you think you're going? She says, I'm going to speak to Rasulullah to tell him of my situation. He says, Rasulullah is not going to hear you. What do you think? He's sitting there, doesn't have, has free time for your pity little issues. She goes, she speaks to Rasulullah. Allah wants this man to know that it's not just Rasulullah who will listen to this woman. It is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself who loves men and women equally. They're all his creation. He will stand in her defense. Allah sends Jibra'il to begin an entire chapter 
قَدْ سَمِعَ اللَّهِ Allah has heard the cries of the woman who came complaining to you, Ya Rasulullah, from her husband. This is explicitly there. When the mujtahid is about to declare a fatwa, he needs to see this. That the rights of a woman and the position of a woman within a family as a wife must be protected because this is the spirit of the Qur'an. This is what's being implied by the Holy Qur'an. Even when it comes to scholarship, if a woman can be a scholar or not, once again we go back to the Holy Qur'an. Ya ayyuhannas, O you children of Adam, mankind, Ya ayyuhannas, speaking to all of humanity, inna khalaqnakum, we've created you min dhakarin wa untha, we created you from men and women, male and female. وَجَعَلْنَاكُمْ شُعُوبًا وَقَبَائِلٍ And we've made you in different tribes and ethnicities and colors and languages and races. إِنَّ أَكْرَمَكُمْ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ The most noble of you, the most honorable of you, the greatest of you is the one with more taqwa. إِنَّ أَكْرَمَكُمْ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ أَتْقَاكُمْ And some women that seek Islamic education, they can become faqih, they can become mujtahids. They can also become role models in our community. They can become the source of inspiration and knowledge and awakening in our community. Now let us come to the second source of tafaqqah, which is hadith. It's important how we try to understand that hadith. We have an extremely important event in Islamic history that has turned into a principle in fiqh. And the scholars of Sunni Islam and Shia Islam and the fuqaha use this story in order to, to, to create a school of thought within fiqh called Qa'idatu la zarar wa la zirar. To refute any sort of any sort of harm and difficulty the story is there was a man by the name of samar ibn jundub he sold a land a house in that land in that house in that garden that he sold call it whatever you want to call it in that estate that he sold he sold the whole thing except a palm tree he said to the owner, look, I'll sell you the whole thing, except this palm tree. So every day, Samara goes inside the house of those people without knocking, without getting permission, and he says, I'm here to collect the dates of the palm tree. I'm here to water the palm tree. I'm here to check up on my palm tree. So the owner told him, listen, I have family here. My wife, my kids, my privacy, this is my home. At least fix a specific time. Come then. He says, no, this belongs to me. I can come whenever I want. He says to him, okay, listen. Take back your home. We don't want this home. He says, no, we've already made the deal. He said, okay, third option. Sell us the palm tree. He says, no, the palm tree is not for sale. So this guy was stuck. He went to Rasulullah. Ya Rasulullah, this guy is causing pain for me every single day. He barges inside the house. 
He disrespects my family. I have no privacy. So Rasulullah says to him, man, listen, Samara, give this palm tree to him and I will give you a palm tree in Jannah. He says, Ya Rasulullah, I'm not interested. I like this palm tree. He says, Samara, sell the palm tree to the man. He says, no, Ya Rasulullah, I don't want to sell it. He says, Samara, take back your house. He says, no, Ya Rasulullah. Rasulullah then said, take the palm tree out of its roots, throw it outside the house. لا ضرر ولا ضرار في الإسلام. And he made a rule that you cannot bring harm to another Muslim. In the religion of Islam, harming others is forbidden. So in order for you to remove harm from yourself, take that palm tree and throw it out the, outside the house. Some of the fatwas, some of the situations of women in our community, when she's stuck in a bad marriage and she's suffering, I believe in some circumstances, she's seen worth less than that palm tree. She wants to get out of the marriage. She's suffering. She's living with a beast. Inhumane person. She has to go and speak to 10,000 people. Beg 50,000 people in order to get a divorce. Isn't Aqdun Nikah a contract? Isn't a contract based on an agreement? Why is it that until today when Muslim women are getting married, the man can break all the terms of the agreement, but the poor woman, she cannot. The fiqh and the faqih and the faqaha must stand firmly with justice and equality when it comes to pursuing the rights of men and women equally in society. Equally in our communities, equally in the books of fiqh, equally in the implementation of fiqh. How come is it that when you have a contract, you honor the contract, someone comes and does something for you, builds your home, you buy a car, 50,000 pounds, you pay him. You get someone to paint your house, costs you 5,000 pounds, you pay him. Because it's your duty. Because it's their haq. Because it's something in your responsibility. If you die tomorrow, Allah will hold us responsible. Why didn't you give the haq of this person? Dowry is a haq that belongs to the woman. If a woman today, she goes to a alim, a scholar, a faqih, an institution of fiqh, and she says, I want my dowry. I want my haq. It is her right to receive her haq immediately. There should be no delays. This is why I see some of the women in our community, and let's be open and frank, disheartened by the religion of Islam. They're not as motivated. They're not as attached as they should. This is not Islam. 
once we change our behavior and we make it Islamic and accordance to the teachings of the Quran, we will live in a better society. We will have better families. We will have better communities. We will bring prosperity to ourselves. Number two, when it comes to certain hadith, you read the hadith, the hadith says, for example, مِنْ سَعَادَةِ الْمَرْأَةِ أَنْ لَا تَرَى رَجُلًا وَأَنْ لَا يَرَاهَا رَجُلٌ Amongst the blessings of a woman is that she does not see a man and a man does not see her. Another hadith says, صَوْتُ الْمَرْأَةِ عَوْرَةِ The voice of woman is part of her hijab. It needs to be protected. Another one, for example, says, Masjid The masjid of a woman is her home. So some people they think the masjid of a woman is her home means, honey, you're planning to go to the mosque? Stay home. She wants to go out. You're in the masjid. Your kitchen. It's your masjid. Why do you want to leave the masjid? They think that the hadith is interpreted the way we desire for it to be interpreted. Or, amongst the blessings for a woman is not to see a man or for a man not to see her. So we imprison her, lock her down, yalla. We want to bless you. We want for you to have a blessed life. Third, the voice of mar'ah is part of her hijab. So please do not speak, use sign language. First of all, as far as the rijal, the chain of narrators, and the authenticity of those three hadiths I just mentioned to you, they are not accepted by grand scholars such as Ayatollah al-Uzma al-Khoi. Ayatollah al-Khoi says those hadiths don't even exist. They don't, they don't mean anything to us. But even when a faqih, a scholar, comes to hadiths, we don't just take them the way we like for them to be interpreted. No. The hadith that says the masjid of a woman in her home means what? Means when she works in the house and she disciplines her children and she takes care of the home, Allah gives her the thawab of being present in the masjid. It doesn't mean that she should not go to the masjid. It means that she's gaining thawab as she remains in her home taking care of her home. Just like Allah says, if a man leaves his house to seek halal rizq, he's doing jihad fi sabilillah. That's how we understand the hadith. That's called fiqh. Or when the hadith says, amongst the blessings of a woman, is that she's not seen by a man, or a man does not see her. It doesn't literally mean if a man sees her or she sees a man. It's a reference to another element of witnessing and seeing. Or when the hadith says the voice of a woman is part of her hijab, yes, the voice of a woman can be seductive. Nobody's denying that. But not under normal circumstances when she's speaking normally. Or else, how, would, how was Fatima al-Zahra able to deliver a sermon? How was Zainab able to deliver a sermon? How was Sayyida 
Nafisa, the daughter of Imam al-Hasan, the granddaughter of Imam al-Hasan, able to teach the grand scholars of Egypt. Fatima Zahra herself used to teach. Jabir ibn Abdullah al-Ansari was one of her students. Today when you read Hadith al-Kisa, who is it narrated by? An Jabir ibn Abdullah al-Ansari, annahu qal, sam'atu Fatima. Jabir says, I heard Fatima. He heard Fatima's voice. Huh? So what do we mean by sawtul mar'ati awra? It means when she speaks, she should speak in a way that is not seductive. Yeah, of course, that we agree with. That is fiqh. To keep the purity and the intentions and encounters between the man and the woman in our community. And third, how, what is the plan, Islamic plan, the Quranic plan, the plan of Ahlul Bayt to empower Muslim women? Brothers, a defeated mother in the home means defeated children, means a defeated family. An uneducated mother means an uneducated family and uneducated children. If you do not give money to your wife and you're miser and greedy with her, first of all, that is haram. Second of all, then your children will never learn generosity and you will never have a generous family. A woman that is broken and depressed and saddened will give you broken and saddened children and it will affect the future of your family. The fate of your children. That is why Amir al Mu'mineen wa Mawla al Muwahideen Ali ibn Abi Talib. When he wanted to marry after Fatima and he wanted to have a family and children who he will reserve for the day of Ashura for the day of the calamities and he wanted to draw a bright future and a, and a powerful fate for his family what did he tell Aqil? he says Aqil, my brother and next week is the, mar is the departure anniversary of the shahadat the wafat of Umm al-Banin we must make a mention of Umm al-Banin the mother of Abel Fadl Abbas he says go and find me a womb a mother who will give me children for the day of Ashura. If Umm al-Banin was a broken mother, a depressed woman, she would not be able to offer to society and to history and to the Muslim Ummah a personality such as Abbas. If Fatima to Zahra wasn't Fatima, she would not be able to be the mother of Hassan and Hussein. And today, look at the West, where you live. What is the difference between the woman in our community and Angela Merkel? Today, 27 countries around the world are headed by women. Women prime ministers and presidents. When we come to our mosques, our communities, our schools, we don't let them lead. 
We don't give them leadership positions anywhere. Why? The leaders of your community, the leaders of your society, the future leaders of this country could be within your family. It could be your own daughter. And the plan that Islam has is to empower them. To give them the self-esteem, to develop them to become leaders. That is why Allah directly himself directs Rasulullah in the Quran. In Mubahala, which was the very first delegation of Muslims to non-Muslims. قُلْ تَعَالَوْ نَدْعُوا أَبْنَاءَنَا وَأَبْنَاءَكُمْ وَنِسَاءَنَا وَنِسَاءَكُمْ Women were part of the very first delegation. And Rasulullah took Fatima to Zahra with him to that delegation representing the Muslim woman. And Fatima to Zahra's name and her mention and her legacy, brothers and sisters, is supposed to change our communities. It's supposed to change the way we behave, the way we think. supposed to bring that perfection and most importantly bring life to our community astajibu lillahi wa rasuli idha da'akum lima yuhyikum let us not be a dead ummah a dead community Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has honored us, the followers of Ahlul Bayt, to have the privilege of being present in such majalis so that we constantly seek the perfection within our communities. And I am extremely proud of this community because I see people from different nationalities and backgrounds. And I see so much youth, so many youth, mashallah, motivated in the name of Ahlul Bayt. And there is nothing more beloved to Allah and to Imam Al-Zaman and to Rasulullah than seeing the youth come towards the religion of Islam, be inspired by the religion of Islam. And we must do that which is in our hands and our capability to keep them and welcome so many others so many others that are that are not with us this evening. So many youth that are in need of your guidance for you to extend your hand to them, to bring them in. Not to judge them. I always say this, I say on the 10th of Muharram, Hurr ibn Yazid al-Riyahi who had intercepted the camp of Imam al-Husayn he saw that that's it, you know, it's, it's a done deal. They're going to annihilate Hussein. Tomorrow they're going to kill him. So he stood between the camp of Hussein and the camp of Umar ibn Sa'd. And he says, nafsi I'm here to ask myself a question. Will I choose heaven? Will I choose salvation? Will I choose the mercy of Allah? Will I choose forgiveness? 
or will I leave that for the dunya and join the camp of Umar ibn Sa'd and he then says لا أختار على الجنة شيئا he went towards Hussein he stood in front of his tent Imam al-Hussein met with Hur ibn Yazid every day before Ashura in fact you know Hur used to pray behind Imam al-Hussein He stood and he says, As-salamu alayka ya Aba Abdullah. Imam al-Hussein, what did he say? He says, Wa alayka salamu man ant. Who are you? Imam al-Hussein obviously knows who he is. He sees him every day. Hur did not say, I am Hur. He says, Ya ibn Rasulillah, ana alladhi ja'ja'a bika al-tariq. Ibn Rasulullah, I am the criminal. I am the one who caused all of this misery. I am the one who intercepted your camp. Imam al Hussein did not tell him, Oh Yazi, oh Hur, shame on you. Now you've come to me when, when they've intercepted my camp, when tomorrow they're going to kill me, when there is 20,000 people in front of me. He says, Ya ibn Rasulullah, Halli min tawbah? Can I have a tawbah? Will Allah forgive me? He says, Tubta ballahu alayk. It's one moment. Imam al Hussein saw that he felt guilty. This man felt guilty. He knew he does not need to make him feel more guilty. He should not make him feel worse than he already does. Now Hur needs a hand to take him, to raise him, to put him back on his feet, to inspire him, to bring him towards Allah. Many of our youth who are here, may Allah bless them, but the ones who aren't here have not done a crime worse than the crime of Hur. But they need that hand. They should not be judged any further, blamed any further. They need that hand to raise them. To bring them to the enlightenment of Ahlul Bayt. And the people outside those four walls are as important as the people inside. So if you spend a dollar here, you spend a dollar there. Bringing them, honoring them, supporting them. Educating them, that is our responsibility. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.